0: One of my heroes uh, was a pastor named Charles Simeon. He was a British pastor, an evangelical Anglican in Cambridge, England, in the early 19th century. Uh, he worked with William Wilberforce on some of those causes in, to uh, bring legal reform and slavery. Uh, and then also, he was one of the leaders in the modern missionary movement to get that moving for out of England. But why I admire him most is the steady, humble way that he ministered in Cambridge. He was, as a young man, he was appointed rector of uh, Trinity Church in Cambridge. And that church, when he arrived, was committed to a version of Christianity that disliked talking about Jesus and was more interested in moralism and training up good citizens for the empire. And they did not like Charles Simeon. And they didn't like his talk about surrendering your lives to Jesus. Um, they didn't like talk of knowing Jesus. Talk of submission. They didn't like how he, he vigorously uh, taught what the Bible said, expository preaching they didn 't like his method, uh, which we experience here, not the dislike, I hope, but the <laughs> exposition um, so they did the natural thing they locked the pews at that time you could there, all the pews had uh, they had bars on them, and they could lock them, and the pews were um, essentially owned by families. So the people in charge of the building, they locked all the pews. They couldn't keep him from the pulpit. At first they did lock the door, but then they they discovered they weren't allowed to do that. But they could lock the pews. They could keep people from sitting. And the the plan was, if, if his preaching made them uncomfortable, they would make everyone else uncomfortable who liked it. And yet people came they they came and that the message of surrender which he preached regularly and the message just the message of the word of god and its transforming power it was drawing people and before long, college students were filling the aisles and poorer folk from the neighborhood and people from other parishes were coming and they would just line up and stand through the service in the aisles and they would climb up on top of the locked benches if they were agile and sit there. And this went on with the occasional pew getting unlocked as a life was changed on and on for five years, after five years, still most of the pews were still locked. It was 10 years of steady biblical preaching before the last pew was unlocked. 10 years! Can you? I, I just cannot imagine that. And Trinity Church has been full ever since. It is the core student church in Cambridge. Thousands and thousands of lives have been transformed through that church and its ministry. So Simeon came to a church where the Holy Spirit was not welcome, where the Holy Spirit was not wanted, where the teaching of God's truth was felt as a threat. And that pairing always goes together. So just as God's Spirit loves God's Word. God's Spirit uses God's Word. Resistance to the Holy Spirit will mean hostility to God's Word. There's a pairing there. So if the people of God, if, if a local church like us, is going to experience transformation through repentance, then God's Word and His Spirit must be involved. They always go together. Without that, the welcomed intervention of the Holy Spirit, repentance is not possible. God is required for repentance. We see this truth, it beckons to us from the passage today in 2 Corinthians 7. That's where we are as we're moving through 2 Corinthians. This is part two of the same passage. Last week, we looked at the difference between self pity. And uh, a penitent heart, or as Paul wrote, between worldly grief and godly grief. We could say between self-love and love for God. Worldly grief. This is a, a person's sorrow for the self. That, it's that sorrow of the world that produces death. Godly grief is sorrow for offending God, and it produces repentance. So today we're going to consider, we're going to consider the difference between a church body that resists repenting, and one that walks in God's light because of repenting. So just as we, we last week we talked about the individual side, and to, today we're talking about the corporate. So as a reminder of context, the numerous small churches that were collectively known as the Church of Corinth recipients of this letter, they had been divided over Paul's authority and over what Christian life should be. A few of the leaders had given welcome to some traveling teachers who were teaching a corrupted gospel, an accommodating gospel, and we're not sure in what ways it was accommodating, whether to legalism or to license. We're not sure. But it was accommodating. Paul had come to visit his churches, and he had been rejected by some group of them when he came to visit. He saw that no good could come of this contentious moment. There was no good in that situation, so he had immediately left, and then he sent a letter by Titus. This letter, we gather, was a clear statement of the word and gospel of Jesus Christ, a statement of the gospel by the grace of God through faith in Jesus. And it no doubt threatened eternal destruction to those who would change this gospel or add to it, detract from it in some way. So we read here in chapter 7 that Titus had gone and he had returned and brought the joyful news that the churches had repented. Not just one church, not just a a couple of the smaller churches. The church of Corinth had repented. The coming of Titus to to Paul brought comfort. It brought rejoicing to this anxiously waiting apostle. It's important to be clear right here at the outset that the Christian's response was the right one. Otherwise, we don't have this joyous response and comfort. It was right. It. Restored them to fellowship with the global church, that church that was expanding. Paul was the means, Paul was the the link to the global church. And so, by restored fellowship with him, Corinth was restored to the global church. It brought them together in unity of spirit. There had been division amongst these churches in one city, they were restored. Most importantly, it led to salvation when they might otherwise have embraced destruction. That's what they were facing, destruction or salvation. Now, because we are individualists in modern America, it's easy and natural for us to think about this response individually. When we read the passage, we think about it individually. We apply the passage individually, just as we did last week. We can understand that self-love, self-pity, self-focus turns us inward. It keeps us rationalizing, keeps us justifying what we have done, what we want to do. That's the nature of a self-focus. We can see so clearly how feeling sorry for yourself is genuine grief. You could genuinely grieve for yourself, but it's the kind of grief that keeps a person from sorrow for sin. It actually entrenches a person in sin. Committing to self-love entrenches you in, the, in a sinful response. Instead of taking responsibility, we shift blame. It's because of what they did. It's because of these circumstances that happened to me. I have no responsibility, we shift blame, self-love, self-pity. On the other hand, again, we're still thinking individually, we can understand that godly sorrow flows from accepting our offense towards God, our offense towards His grace, our resistance to Him, our, our stubbornness, Godly grief comes from seeing it for what it is, for seeing our bent away from Him. Sorrow that we have that inward bent and that we go to it again and again. And so desperately wanting to be right with God, wanting to be right with God more than wanting to be right, an individual will accept whatever consequence For the sake of that highest good. And that is evident. When someone is penitent, truly penitent, it exudes, it cannot be mistaken for anything else. Because there, as we read in that passage, there is an earnestness, an eagerness, a zeal, an indignation. I I must be right with God. I will do what I have to do. I will abase myself. But Paul was writing to churches, groups, gatherings, ultimately to the whole group, the sum of those gatherings. Yes, individuals heard the message, but he was writing to corporate bodies. Every pronoun in the passage is a plural pronoun. Every you is a plural you. So how does a church body share in godly sorrow? How does a church body share? Share in repentance. When does this happen? How does it arise? We get the individual thing quite easily, but the corporate one is more challenging. So I'm building on last week. Let's learn from the Corinthians. What happened here is that God's word came to them in a very direct and confrontational way through Paul. Let me say it more forcefully. Jesus spoke to the Corinthians. It was a personalized message from God to the Corinthian churches. He reminded them that without his mercy, they were trapped in evil and they would be destroyed. He reminded them that he had loved them even in their evil even when they were prisoners of the prince of the power of the air. He had loved them in their evil so much that he had suffered and died on their behalf and that he had then offered them forgiveness and had offered them a new life. We don't have this letter. We know it said these things because this is the gospel of Christ. Paul had certainly told them, That if they insist on their own righteousness and on their own authority, then they would be rejecting his work and his gospel. They would be rejecting Jesus as Lord, Jesus as he truly is. And so the Lord said these things to the churches of Corinth through his sent one, the apostle Paul the crucial thing that happened was that the Corinthian churches really did have God's Holy Spirit. His Spirit was really in them, among them. And they heard this gospel. They heard it as a, as a true gospel reminder. They heard it as good news with the help of the Spirit. How do we know the Spirit was there at work? Here's how we know it. We know it because their response was one of humility. Humility. Humility is one of the most distinctive markers of the Holy Spirit. Because it's the opposite of pride. Our natural disposition. The normal human disposition. Where there's humility. And a reception of the gospel. The reception of Uh, the idea of surrender, the Holy Spirit is at work. The scriptures show distinctly how humility is uniquely the mind of Christ. Now, urging this humility, this, this mind that is Christ, Paul wrote to the Philippians, familiar message, have this mind, this one, among yourselves, which you have in Christ Jesus, You can't have it any other way. It's yours in Christ Jesus. Though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, was not clutching exaltation, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness, the lowliness of men, and being found in human form, he further humbled himself as if that were not enough. He further humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even the shameful public death on a cross. That's the mind of Christ. To be yoked with Christ, which is what a Christian is called to do. That's what Jesus invites people to do be yoked with me to be yoked with christ and walk in step with him we have to have the same mindset we have to have his mind to be walking as He is walking at the pace in the direction in the way that he walks we have to have his spirit giving us humility giving us self forgetfulness forgetfulness of that way that we would just go on our own. We have to have his mind to go his way. And his mind is humility. The fact that the Corinthian churches all collectively responded with godly sorrow, when that gospel rebuke came, when the word came, tells us that the Spirit took God's word and brought them home brought them back into step. And that can only happen when the churches, those individual gatherings, are accustomed to listening to the Holy Spirit and have a willingness to obey. Paul points to this disposition in verse 15. Titus's affection for you is even greater as he remembers The obedience of you all. How you received him with fear and trembling. The obedience of you all. It's not just that there were a couple of humble folk who were ready to receive their favorite apostles, visitor. And the rest of them were a proud congregation. It's not that even that there were a few self-righteous folks standing in the back with their arms folded, upset about what was happening. Together, together they had responded to the Spirit's conviction. That's a remarkable thing. What we aren't told, but we can infer, is that they had done some prayer and listening. How is it that people get together in step with what the Spirit is calling. They had done some prayer and listening to each other after that letter had come, after that rebuking letter had come. God speaks to his people through his people. He speaks through his word, and his word is discerned through his people. And he always, always, always speaks in accord with what he has already said. God will not contradict himself. He will not disagree with himself. What he has said before, he will affirm. He will bring, uh, he'll bring right up to the presence. He'll bring it into new context. So when the, his people are trying to align their hearts and minds with him, he gives them unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. That's what he says he gives. Unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. He speaks one word. And when his people hear it rightly, they all hear it as right. They hear it as true. And their hearts become aligned. Because his spirit is active. He's helping to sift through thoughts, to sift through emotions. We join in as we we submit to his sifting as we try, try to align our thoughts with his word, because he will not disagree with his word. And he draws his people into agreement, and that gives us this sense of peace and unity. But that will only happen if the people are yielding to his spirit. And that only happens in the mighty power of humility, this otherworldly gift from the eternal realms of humility, this unnatural gift of humility. In Joel chapter 2, our Old Testament passage this morning, God wants his people to repent. He wants them to be restored. He wants their healing. And so he calls on them and says, turn to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, with mourning. Rend your hearts, not your garments. Return to the Lord, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, of great kindness, ready to restore. If we want to be people... A people who's able to hear the Lord. We know that He's speaking. He's always speaking. If we want to be able to hear Him, we have to have openness to His Spirit. And we show openness by a willingness to respond when He speaks. Rather than being entrenched rather than already knowing that we're right, we stand in our rightness, an openness and a willingness to respond when he speaks, and that includes a willingness to set aside our pride and our self-defense when he brings conviction. That openness as a people, it gets expressed individually It gets expressed through individual willingness. When you need prayer, go get it. This is the the response. That willingness to move when he's moving, when he's speaking. When the Lord prompts you to confess, seek someone quickly. Quickly. The response to confession is if you don't respond quickly, Your self-preservation will cause you to justify the sin. So when he's speaking, move! If that happens in a church service, that is why we have people ready to pray with you during communion. And we want to be a body of people who's ready to hear one another when prayer is asked. When you're given an opportunity to serve, the Lord urges, serve in this way and you feel a nudge, do it. Do it. We develop either a disposition to respond to God or a disposition to resist Him. Right now, at this moment, today, you are nurturing one of those dispositions. There's never neutral. We're always feeding into one of those dispositions. So today, you are working on a spiritual muscle. It's a basic soul response. And that is either humble obedience or prideful resistance. It's happening right now. You're exercising one of those spiritual muscles. Humble obedience or prideful resistance. So just just as surely as our calf muscles, our... Our quads and our biceps are right now either atrophying or being strengthened. They're never just in stasis, they're moving one of those directions, subtly, but all the time. Your spiritual muscles are doing the same thing. So, you are a member of the body of Christ as well. You are a muscle in the body of Christ. You affect us as a whole. So we are strong when every member is strong. We're weak when every member is weak. But that's not normally our our condition, right? We're not normally all strong and normally all weak. Because like each of us individually, we are usually growing a bit and weakening a bit across this gathering. If we want to grow strong, if we want to grow strong, it is by acknowledging our weakness. If we want to grow spiritually strong, it's by acknowledging our weakness. At least four times in the Scripture, the Lord says, humble yourself in the sight of the Lord. He will exalt you or lift you up. So let's come to him with honesty about our need. And he will give more grace. Spiritual power is God's power. It doesn't belong to us. If we want to be strengthened in our spiritual muscles, he will do it. It is ours to yield to him. And so as we humble ourselves, he fills us with himself. It's not that he fills us with, some, with magical powers. That's not how this works. Curse you, Disney. There's a message that what we really need is powers. There's evil in that. The message from our Lord is what we need is Him. Him. There is not spiritual, good spiritual power apart from him. It's him, just him. So if we humble ourselves, he fills us with himself. It's true for individuals. It's also true for a church family. So if we will humbly receive him, he will inhabit our gathering and he will give us grace for our time, our moment. We are in a moment, such a moment. We are weak. We are conscious of this weakness. We receive word this week that, and have a meeting coming up, that our hosts are going to be doubling our rent. As you understand budgets, that's not how it works we We have not budget for that um, It's not there. that's a challenge um, but we've kind of known this, haven't we? We have as we meet outside for three months of the year and there are other complicating factors through other parts of the year, we know this um, I feel a bit like the as the Israelites were following the Lord in the wilderness. And the pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire would stop and they would camp for some time. And then the pillar would begin to move. And that was the signal, pack up, pack up your tents, literally. Pack them up, we're we're moving on. Um, But they didn't know. The Lord didn't say, we're going to be walking for ten days we're going to be going to that mountain. They had no idea as they began walking. They got themselves into trouble, didn't they, when they insisted that, no, th- this place with this, these springs, this is where we should be. Why is he doing this to us? Why, when they grumbled and complained at what he was giving them, his presence, his instruction, his chastening, his discipline. Uh, I feel that rise up in me. Why don't you just give me what I want? Lord Jesus, I know what we need. Um, but I don't. And I feel helpless because we are. <laughs> we are. I have tried to get around that. I have tried to think, how, how can we just really aggressively come at this? This nothing. Uh, so I want to ask you, let's respond as humble people. Uh, let's do what we know we're supposed to do, what he's called us to do, which is to fast and pray and ask him to lead us where he's going to lead us. Uh, so I just want to invite you um, in the next Three days, it's a small ask, three days, would you take a meal and pray? Don't eat, that's fasting. Pray during that time that you would normally eat. Um, Ask for the Lord's direction. Um, And if you are able, would you gather Wednesday evening with me at our church office? at uh, Calvary, Calvary Church, seven o'clock, and it's not in the bulletin. Um, And let's discern together, pray, discern. Um, In your prayers, just be honest. I pray you'd be honest. we're not the best game in town that that's not why we're asking it's not that we deserve anything we're not entitled to anything here but i think the lord wants us to continue to exist so let's let's pray with confidence that we he loves us we have his favor uh, but also in our helplessness let's pray now father Thank you so much for teaching us through the Word. Thank you that the struggles of your people in past times are instructive to us, that you continue to speak to your church all over the world in all sorts of different circumstances through what you did with this church. And we ask now for your help, for your wisdom and guidance You're the shepherd of your people. You're our king. We know you have orders for us. Give us ears to hear them. In Jesus' name.